You're listening to A Prophet, a collaboration between Sakhlain and Al-Hujja Islamic Seminary. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider becoming our patron by donating at sakhlain.org support. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وآله الطيبين الطاهرين اللهم صل على محمد وآله محمد Respected brothers and sisters السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته We continue our journey in the be- into the beautiful and amazing biography of the Holy Prophet Previously we examined some important events that happened in the sixth year after the Hijrah. In our discussion tonight, we will examine the most important event that happened in the sixth year of the Hijrah and that was before the conquest of Mecca. This is called the event of Sulh al-Hudaybiyah, the Hudaybiyah Treaty. This happened year six. There are many lessons to learn from this event. Tonight and in the subsequent weeks, we will analyze this very important event. Hudaybiyah is an area close to Mecca and some of it lies in the Haram area. You know around Mecca you have what is called the Haram area, it's a sacred place, certain laws apply to it, for instance it's Haram to hunt wild animals in that area, during in the Haram area. Part of Hudaybiyah lies in the Haram area and part of it outside of the Haram area, so it's not far from Mecca, it's pretty close to Mecca. There is a mosque today in Hudaybiyah called Masjid al-Shajara, this is not the Masjid al-Shajara that's close to Medina where pilgrims put their ihram from, this is another one. Now what happens before this event is that the Prophet sees a very important dream. He sees that he's entering Mecca with his companions in safety and security, going into Masjid al-Haram, into the Grand Mosque. And the Prophet sees in his dream that they have their heads shaved or cut, meaning the hair is cut, this is called taqseer. Because when you go to pilgrimage, you either shave the head for the men, or you cut part of the hair for men and women. The Prophet sees himself in the dream entering the Holy Kaaba. He takes the keys and he performs the rituals of the Umrah and then he goes to Arafah. The Prophet informs his companions of this dream. They become ecstatic. They thought that this same year, year six of the Hijrah, they will go to Mecca. And finally, after years of persecution, God will give them victory to enter Mecca triumphantly and do the pilgrimage. Then the Prophet, after seeing this dream, He informs his companions, I want to do the Umrah. I am going to the pilgrimage. They all prepared themselves for traveling. The Prophet even invited neighboring tribes around Medina to come with him 
on this very important journey, the Umrah. So he invited tribes like Banu Ghifar, Juhayna. He told them, come, join me on this trip. The Prophet does his ghusl in his house, meaning in, in the area around his house for the Umrah. He puts on his ihram clothes and they go to Dhul Hulayfa. For those of you who have gone to the Hajj, Dhul Hulayfa is an area to the south, to the south of Medina. That's where you officially start your ihram from. It's called one of the mawaqeet, one of the set places that you can start your ihram from. Because in our Islamic law, you can't start your ihram from anywhere. Ihram is when you start the pilgrimage, you say labbaik Allahumma labbaik, you wear those two pieces of cloth. That's called the ihram, when the ritual of the hajj starts. Now, you cannot start your ihram anywhere. You have to go to places where the Prophet designated. So the Prophet goes to Dhul Hulayfa. Today, there is a masjid there called Masjid al-Shajara where the pilgrims start their ihram. And it's the farthest of the mawaqeet from Mecca. So there are several places around Mecca that you can start your ihram from. This is the farthest one, it's, it's in Medina. Today, it's considered one of the suburbs of Medina. Now, some of the Prophet's companions, they decided to go to Juhfa in order to do their ihram. Juhfa is further to the south. So these are Hajj checkpoints, let's call, let's call them, where you have to start your ihram from. By the way, recently a brother went to the Umrah just a few days ago. And he did ihram on his plane, on the plane. Now in Sunni fiqh, in some schools of thought, this is allowed. So he did his ihram on the plane. The plane landed in Jeddah. And then from Jeddah, he went to Mecca. Now that he reached Mecca, he called me. Sayyid, is my ihram right? So I told him, no, that's not a valid ihram. Because you can't do ihram on the plane. You have to go to one of the mawaqeet. And Jeddah is not one of the mawaqeet. Even if you did your ihram in the airport in Jeddah, that's not one of the checkpoints that the Prophet assigned. For those of, for those of you who land in Jeddah and you wish to go to Mecca, you have to go to Juhfa. You do your ihram there and then you continue to Mecca. So, I, so he said, what do I do? I told him, at least go back to Jeddah. Go back to Jeddah, do your ihram from there because that's the nearest place you can go if you can't go to Juhfa. Because he said, I can't go to Juhfa. Then he told me, I can't go to Jeddah, I'm stuck. I'm here in Mecca, I'm stuck. So I told him, if you're stuck and you have no way to get out, then you go to Adna al-Hil, just go outside of the Haram area. Go to Masjid al-Tan'im for instance, do your ihram from there and enter. So the Prophet does his ihram from Masjid al-Shajara, which is to the south of Medina. Most sources indicate the Prophet started this journey in the month of Dhul Qa'dah, which is one month before the main Hajj. Some reports indicate it was in the month of Ramadan, but that's very unlikely. Some women joined, such as Um Salama, the wife of the Prophet she joined the Prophet on this journey. The Prophet also commanded his companions to bring the hadi, the sacrificial animals that you sacrifice at the Hajj. So they brought 70 camels with them. How many men were there with the Prophet on this journey? We have different reports. Some say 700, some say 1,400, 
Some say 1,500, some say 1,800. Most sources indicate somewhere around 1,000 of the companions of the Prophet joined him on this journey to try and attempt to do the Umrah. Now they traveled until they reached a place called Asafan. The Prophet according to many reports, before he left Medina, he appointed a man, a companion by the name of Ibn Umm Maktoum to represent him in Medina. Because the Prophet, whenever he would leave Medina, he'd assign a representative, represent me, you know, you take care of my community while I'm gone. Now what's interesting about Ibn Umm Maktoum is that he was blind. He was disabled. And this shows you that Islam did not dismiss disabled people. Just because you're disabled, we don't give you a role. So what, even if he's blind, he can lead Medina and he can lead Salatul Jama'ah, the Prophet assigned him to lead the prayer. If your intellectual capacity is there, it's valued. Even if you're physically disabled. Now the Arabs found this strange. The Prophet is appointing a blind man in order to lead the prayer and to be his representative, but the Prophet was breaking those barriers. And so we appreciate the way Islam treated disabled people and gave them respect and gave them a very important place in society. This was unprecedented, but the Prophet acted by the instruction of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the Prophet leaves and he's going south towards Mecca. I would like to share with you several observations here. Number one, when the Prophet left in the state of Ihram, going for the pilgrimage, this assured the Meccans that he had no intentions of fighting. He's leaving peacefully for his pilgrimage. This was important for the Prophet to send this important signal. Secondly, yes, even though the Prophet did not go to fight, but him asking Muslims to go to Mecca was a very bold move. And the Quraysh, they felt threatened by that. Because the Muslims were getting stronger, Tawheed was prevailing. If the Muslims were to successfully enter Mecca, this would attract the attention of all tribes, the Arab tribes. And it would demonstrate to them that Islam is the future of this land. Make no mistake about that. And this would encourage other tribes to make alliances with Muslims. So even though it was a peaceful journey, the Quraysh would not welcome this. No, you Muslims are not welcome. This was their attitude. The third observation, the dream that the Prophet had. The dreams of Prophets are different than dreams of human beings. The dreams of normal human beings sometimes can be a reflection of reality. We call them ru'ya sadiqa, true dreams. And sometimes they are dreams that don't have any significance. But when the Prophet has a dream, it's a reflection of reality. And in fact, it's a type of wahi. It's a type of revelation that the Prophets would receive. Like Prophet Ibrahim, what did Allah reveal to him in his dream about his son? To kill his son, right? Allah gave him that command in the dream. So the dreams of Prophets are revelation. Now the Prophet saw this dream that they're entering Masjid al-Haram, and they're in safety and in security, shaving their heads. But did the, dream, did the dream happen year six? 
during the event of Hudaybiyah or no? No, it did not happen. It happened next year. Year 7 during the conquest of Mecca. So the dream came true, but not that same year, the following year. Allah mentions this dream in Surah Al-Fatih, verse 27. Allah says a year later, that dream which the Prophet had last year, Allah has made it true. You will enter Masjid al-Haram. This is a true dream that the Prophet had. You shall enter Masjid al-Haram, Aminin, in a state of peace and security. You're either shaving your heads or you're cutting the hair. And you have no fear. Allah says this dream is true. But when did it happen? Not year six during this journey, the following year. Why? Why did Allah delay it one year? To try the companions. Sometimes something is delayed, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tries you. So we find that dreams play an important role in prophetic history, especially in the, in the story of which prophet we see the theme of dreams recurring. Prophet Yusuf salam. he saw the dream when he was young. You know those two uh, people who were imprisoned with him, they saw the dream. The king, he saw the dream. So we find that dreams play an important role in the history of prophets and sometimes Allah guides people through a dream. In one hadith, Imam al-Sadiq states, إِذَا كَانَ الْعَبْدُ عَلَى مَعْصِيَةِ اللَّهِ عَزَّ وَجَلْ وَأَرَادَ اللَّهُ بِهِ خَيْرًا أَرَاهُ فِي مَنَامِهِ رُؤْيَا تُرَوِّعُهُ The Imam states, sometimes if a person is leading a sinful life, Allah will show him a scary dream in order to awaken him, to discipline him, to threaten him. And this ends up guiding some people. By the way, there's an interesting hadith that says, one of the companions of, I believe, Al-Imam Al-Kadhim he was not firm in his iman. So Allah guided him in a story, long story. Allah guided him through the Imams of Ahlul Bayt, and he had yaqeen and a firm faith. When he developed yaqeen, he stopped seeing interesting dreams. Before, when his faith was shaky, he would see the Prophet, he would see you know, Imam Ali, he would see the Imams in his dream. He regularly would see them. After his faith became solid, he stopped seeing them. So he got upset. One day, he saw Al-Imam Sadiq in his dream. So he said to the Imam, he complained. He told him, Ya ibn Rasulullah, before when my Iman was shaky, I would see you the Ahlul Bayt regularly in my dream. But ever since my Iman became solid, I'm not really seeing you. The Imam told him, when your Iman was shaky, Allah wanted to send you signs because Allah wanted to guide you. He found your heart worthy of guidance. Now that you have yaqeen, there's no need to see us anymore. You have yaqeen, you've, ach you've achieved the, the true faith. There is no pressing need now for you to see us. So sometimes dreams can be a source of awakening for some people. Now the dream of the Prophet had a huge impact on believers and hypocrites. The true believers showed their full faith. They said, look, we know the Meccans it doesn't look like they're gonna allow us to enter Mecca. Doesn't seem like it, they're too strong. They're not welcoming us. But this is what the Prophet saw. 
we'll accept it. We don't know how it's going to play out, but we trust the Prophet. The hypocrites on the other hand, they took that as an opportunity to weaken Islam. So when they went to Hudaybiyah later, we shall see they were actually blocked from entering Mecca. The hypocrites were like, oh, see this Prophet is not that truthful. He saw a dream, you're gonna enter Masjid al-Haram, it turned out to be fake. So they started to spread, spread doubt and fear in the Muslim community and in Arabia. But of course later after the conquest of Mecca, the truth became clear and so many people witnessed how Allah supported the Prophet and how he actualized his dream and how the dream became true. So this dream in the history of the Prophet is considered one of his miracles and prophecies. Something that he saw and it happened. Yes, not that same year, the following year. The fourth observation, this journey when the Prophet decided to go to Mecca, this put Meccans in a very bad spot. Why? Because the Meccans claimed that the Kaaba is for everyone. This is for all Arabs. And that they were the best custodians and that they were hospitable guests for any pilgrim. Blocking the Muslims from entering Mecca looked very bad for them. And it showed how oppressed Muslims are. So it was a really smart move from the Prophet ﷺ to make, to expose the Quraysh and to put them in a difficult spot. Now some Arab tribes, they refused to join the Prophet. Those who had become Muslim, the new Muslims, right? The superficial Muslims, those who were not really firm in their faith yet. Remember Surah al Surah At-Tawbah states, around you there are so many hypocrites in Medina. So some of these shallow-minded Muslims, such as the tribe of Bani Bakr, Muzayna, and Juhayna, when the Prophet asked them to join, they're like, no, we're not interested, we're busy with our dunya. Then you know what they said? They're like, huh, look at Muhammad, he's going to Mecca, he thinks he can really defeat the Quraysh. Muhammad and his companions are like one bite. They'll easily be eaten. They were underestimating the power of the Prophet And they said, if Muhammad goes to Mecca, he'll never come back safely. He's dead meat. Muslims are saying this. Muslims are saying this. Companions are saying this. And then today there are other schools of thought who expect us to respect all companions. No, I'm not going to respect such companions. I'm sorry. <laughs> Those who don't have solid faith, I don't respect them. If, if, if their iman is not solid. Now many hypocrites didn't join the Prophet on this journey because they knew that the Quraysh will not let the Prophet enter Mecca and a war could easily break out. They didn't want to take this risk. But some hypocrites joined. Why? Even hypocrites who did not believe in the Prophet's mission and they thought it was a terrible idea to go to Mecca, they still joined. Why? For the hypocrites, those who were really sharp, see you had two types of hypocrites. You had hypocrites with low IQ, let's say. <laughs> and then you had hypocrites with high IQ. <laughs> those hypocrites with very high IQ, the smart shrewd ones, they figured, let's go with Muhammad. If he wins and he enters Mecca, hey, we'll say we were with you. If he fails, we've secretly made negotiations with Quraysh, we'll, we'll, we'll quickly switch sides 
and that way we'll be on good terms with Quraysh. So it's a win-win for us. We'll tell the Quraysh that we never believed in him and you know we were just trying to see what happens. So if we feel that he's being defeated, we'll switch over and we'll even help end Islam. So some hypocrites did join the Prophet on this journey. Now as we stated earlier, the Prophet left peacefully. He did not take any war weapons with him. So according to a narration, Umar ibn al-Khattab said to the Prophet, Atakhsha ya Rasulallah min Abi Sufyan wa ashabih? Look at how sometimes he would speak to the Prophet. When he sees the Prophet not leaving with weaponry, with weapons, he, tell, he tells him, Ya Rasulallah, are you scared of Abu Sufyan and his people? How come you didn't take weapons with you? Are you scared of them? Do you ask a Prophet if you're scared of a mushrik? Seriously, who does that? Who would ask Rasulullah, the greatest creation of Allah, the final seal of all prophets, are you scared of your enemy? How come you didn't take your weapons? But yeah, this is what he said to him. The Prophet told him, The Prophet says, I'm going for Umrah. This is pilgrimage. I don't want to carry weapons with me. So the Prophet did not carry weapons. Yes. There is one report that At-Tabari narrates, Tabari the famous, the famous Sunni historian, he narrates a hadith that claims they took weapons, but we dismiss this report. So this is what Tabari claims. He says that when the Prophet left and he reached the Hulayfa, he did not take any weapons with him. So Umar told him, Ya Rasulullah, you are going to a city that belongs to your enemies and they're at war with you and you don't take any weapons? So the Prophet listened to Umar according to Tabari and he sent some of his companions to go to Medina and he told them whatever weapons you find in Medina, bring it. So he took the weapons to Mecca but you know in the end they didn't let him enter Mecca. Then then the report of Tabari narrates that the Prophet sent, sent Khalid ibn al-Walid to Akrama, who was over there in Mecca. So this is the claim. We dismiss this report for a number of reasons. Number one, this, record, this report mentions Khalid. When did Khalid officially become a Muslim? After the conquest of Mecca, during the Hudaybiyah event, Khalid was a mushrik and a leader of the horsemen trying to kill the Prophet. So this hadith claims the Prophet sent him to Mecca. You can tell the fabrications. Khalid was not a Muslim here yet. That's number one. Number two, we have other correct reports that clearly state the Prophet did refuse to take any weapons. So this report that Tabari narrates, we dismiss it, we dispute it. It's not an accurate report. The Prophet indeed left without weapons. He was doing the Umrah, he left peacefully and he sent a clear message to the pagans of Mecca, I'm not here to fight. I'm here with my ihram. I'm here to do the Umrah. 